0: This podcast series contains discussion of historical violence, racism, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. So far, we've met Willie Part, a young black man accused of sexual assault in the Jim Crow era South, and Rosa Cannon, the young white woman who made the accusation. If we stayed just with this story, it would be dramatic enough. But to understand how this story played out, you have to pull back and look at the circumstances swirling around the case against Willie Lepard. The historical context in which it happened. And how that context contributed to the conviction and the death of this teenager, who was an innocent man. Just to recap, here's what happened. Allegedly, Rosa told investigators that she was attacked on the night of January 26, 1890. She and her brother Owen were inside a home in the Main Street area of Lexington, South Carolina, when a black man neither of them had ever seen before, who called himself Bailey from Columbia, climbed through a window. He asked for food, demanded money, and then physically attacked and allegedly raped Rosa Cannon as Owen ran for help. Willie was apprehended in town that same night, and brought to Rosa, who identified him on site as the person who assaulted her. Based on that lone ID, he was convicted of rape, sentenced to death, and ultimately murdered by a lynch mob inside the Lexington County Jail. We've covered the details of the reported attack earlier in this series, but a different dimension of this story unfolds when you dig deeper into the circumstances leading up to it and learn more about another character in this story, and where he stands in this small town. At the time of the alleged attack, Rosa and her brother Owen were babysitting the young daughter of a prominent and controversial couple in Lexington, Simeon and Martha Ann Corley. Rosa came from a family of mill workers from an even more rural part of Lexington County, But here she was, living in the Corleys' fine antebellum home in Lexington, acting as a kind of nanny to their children. By 1890, Simeon Corley was something of an oddity in Lexington. But a quarter century earlier, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, he had actually been one of South Carolina's most prominent politicians.
1: Corley had been a Republican Reconstruction-era congressman before the Civil War.
0: This is Michael Burgess, the history teacher at River Bluff High School who researched Willie Leapart's lynching and found some uncomfortable suggestions in the way
1: the case was written about at the time. Here's how he describes Simeon Corley. He was an unusual guy in that he was a unionist, which which maybe is not unusual, was an abolitionist, which is more unusual for being in Lexington, South Carolina before the Civil War. But he was also a vegetarian, which is very, very unusual.
0: Corley might have been unusual in the pre-Civil War South, but his political convictions became important in the period after the Civil War. After the defeat of the Confederacy, South Carolina was occupied by the Union Army. The former slave-owning elite, long allied with the Democratic Party, lost its grip on power during the post-war Reconstruction period. Newly freed enslaved people, who at this point made up a majority of the state's population, were guaranteed the right to vote by the 15th Amendment. It was a radically changed, in fact almost completely inverted, political situation from just a few years earlier. Those changes empowered Republicans like Corley, who would serve in Congress in the late 1860s. But after Reconstruction, the Democrats would make a comeback regaining control of the South Carolina government using not entirely
1: democratic methods. We'll get to that shortly. But by this point in 1890, with the Democrats having regained control in 1876, Corley is still roughly involved in Republican politics, but will never hold an office. And the first question, and still remaining a question, if our audience wants to be interactive, is we're not real sure why Rosa Cannon and her young brother Owen had come to stay at the Corley house at this
0: time. I'm glad Michael is inviting the audience to interact here, but we're going to get into why Rosa Cannon may have been staying with the Corleys before the alleged attack, and why it may suggest an alternative explanation for the story she told. I'm Bristow March a reporter for the state newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina. And this is The Wrong Walk Home, The Lynching of Willie Leapart, a podcast from McClatchy and the state about a long-ago crime from a dark period of American history that's not so much a mystery as to who committed the murder, but why the murder played out the way it did. To understand his involvement, you first have to understand Simeon Corley's position in the Lexington community. He may have been an oddity for his time, but his family held a prominent place in Lexington's history. Even as Willie Leapart was sitting in the Lexington County Jail in the middle of town, the plot of land he was sitting on had another connection to the Corley family.
1: So Barbara Corley deeded this land for the town, and she was married to sort of the original founding Corley of of Lexington. And Simeon Corley is connected to that original founding family of, of Lexington himself. So, you know, we haven't talked a lot about him on this walk, but he is a very fascinating figure that I'm sure we'll get into today. But he is connected, and one of the reasons he's able to live in this community, despite some of his, at that time, extremist beliefs, or that he is part of this founding Corley family that, that creates the town of Lexington.
0: The Corleys were one of the most prominent families and landowners in the county, dating back to when the town of Lexington was originally founded in the early 1800s. That partly accounts for Simeon Corley's continued notoriety in the community. Corley and his family lived in a large house on Main Street, just a few yards from the home of another man who was prominent in this story someone who represents the future of South Carolina as much as Corley represented its past, and who would be one of the first people to rush to the scene the night Rosa
1: Cannon is attacked. And the witnesses will include a man by the name of F.C. Kaufman, someone who will, will become bigger and bigger in our story as we go. Uh, Kaufman in 1890 was a local businessman, but more importantly, he was the political operative to Benjamin Ryan Tillman, who in 1890 is running for governor as part of this agrarian revolt in South Carolina. Yeah, talk a little bit about Ben Tillman just to establish who that is for the audience. So if our listeners have never heard of Ben Tillman, one of the certainly most colorful, controversial, and despicable characters in South Carolina politics, Uh, Tillman was born to a farming family in Edgefield, South Carolina. They were not considered... A part of the the inner circle, wealthy elite of plantations, possibly because the whole family has a rough edge to it. His older brother, George, in fact, will end up murdering someone on the steps of the Edgefield Courthouse, and he's a lawyer. They're arguing over a case and end up spending some time in jail and then being released and then being elected the United States Congressman. Tillman will not serve in the Civil War, because when he gets old enough he's 16 when a tumor is discovered behind his left eye. The tumor is removed and for the rest of his life he has one eye. After the Civil War, during Reconstruction, he becomes engaged in the 1876 Red Shirt Movement. The Red Shirts are a paramilitary group committed to 1876 to winning the 76 election, driving the, the Republican government from power, and redeeming the state of South Carolina by putting Democrat General Wade Hampton III in office. As part of this, Tillman is a participant as part of his local gun club in what becomes known as the Hamburg Massacre, where red shirts end up massacring members of an African-American militia. He will later brag about this on the floor of the United States Senate. As a political
0: figure, Tillman would build his career on racist appeals, including catering to white voters' support for lynching as a means of controlling the black community. Tillman was known as Pitchfork Ben because of how aggressive his rhetoric was. He even stated in 1892 that he would, quote, willingly lead a mob in lynching a Negro who had committed an assault
2: on a white woman. Reconstruction was not this desegregated utopia marked only by a couple of incidents of white supremacists.
0: This is Seth Stoughton, a law professor at the University of South Carolina.
2: Reconstruction failed to establish a racially equitable society in large part because of the pushback that forced the end of Reconstruction among there's no real other way to put it among white supremacists, among uh, people who continued to believe that blacks were an inferior race, that whites were a superior race. I should point out, it's not just uh, blacks. It's kind of everyone except what was defined as white at the time. And I will note that uh, one of the more interesting things about looking at history with this racialized lens in mind is that our social definition of who counts as white, has really changed a lot. One of the biggest mass lynchings was actually of uh, Italians. I think it was in New Orleans, but I might be wrong about that. But one of the biggest uh, mass lynchings in the country was, was of Italians. And that's because in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Italian immigrants were not viewed as white. Um, German immigrants were not viewed as white. If we fast forward a little bit to prohibition, a big part of the white Protestant support for prohibition was the perception that primarily German immigrants were getting drunk all the time and beating their wives. And that's why... We could still allow the, the social elites to have and drink wine, but we had to ensure that the beer halls were closed, right? We couldn't let the working class. So there was a class dimension, and all of these concepts of race and class and language and culture um, kind of bleed together when we're talking about groups who are, let's say, melanin-deprived, right, who are, who are white in, in color, J.R. Finnell is
0: the director of the Lexington County Museum. He says this was a period that obviously made a lot of black people in the area nervous. It wasn't clear what rights they really had in the aftermath of Reconstruction after the U.S. military had pulled back
3: from the South, no matter what rights they may have had on paper. After the Civil War, you did have uh, some freed slaves, some African Americans leaving Lexington County, just like they did throughout the South. Some went to Kansas. Uh, there was actually a group I know that went to Liberia. So it was, I think, scary for for the freedmen. Again, you know, not knowing exactly what was going to happen and whether the Union Army was going to protect them and their maybe newfound rights. And for white people, I mean, they, you know, they had no idea what was going to happen either. And so at first, I mean, again, you had some uh, African-American involvement in government. Uh, They were given rights. But again, like you saw throughout the South, there was a kind of um, attempt to impose basically new slavery on a lot of these freedmen. So they would have to sign contracts where they, you know, were basically their rights were limited. They couldn't leave uh, certain farms. They had to do certain things. And, you know, you had some attempts to to basically solve that issue from the Freedmen's Bureau and other kind of federal organizations. But, um, you know, it was it was kind of devastating. And really, you know, after 1876 and kind of when the Union Army leaves, you kind of see things go back to where, you know, African-Americans are are oppressed and, um, you know, kind of limited in what they're able to do. In the
0: racialized politics of the time, Ben Tillman was able to play poor whites off against blacks, who were exercising political rights for the first time, as
1: well as the traditionally powerful plantation owners. This is Michael again. In the 1880s, Tillman is a farmer, but his farm struggles and he begins to advocate for reform and his two opponents are the wealthy elite Democrats like Wade Hampton and African Americans. So when he runs in 1890, it's a, a populist campaign built on a a couple of things, taking power from the white wealthy elite and instituting a tougher version of Jim Crow on African-Americans and being willing to use violence to do it. And so in 1890, Tillman is running for governor, uh, and one of his his biggest base counties is going to be Lexington. Even as all this was going on, Lexington's
0: African-Americans were building a life and a community for themselves. Constance Fleming and her daughter Ebony Bowers are lifelong residents of the Hill neighborhood in Lexington. They have researched their family's history in the area and described the world as it probably would have seemed to Willie Leapart.
4: We've been going through a lot of that recently, um, looking at our family history and how our family history plays a part in Lexington, a huge part actually, especially here on the Hill is what they call it. Um, It's predominantly black community or African-American community. And we were the first, if not, well, one of the first, if not the first family house to be built here in this area to start the Hill community. And that happened
5: in 1904. 1904. Mm The house that we're sitting in now is the original home house. And my great grandparents built it. What I was told by my grandparents and by my aunt and uncle is that my great grandfather was an Indian from the mountains of North Carolina who was brought down here to work with the family. I won't name that family, but he was a good worker by day. But if something happened by day that he didn't agree with, He was always available to straighten it out at night. (laughs) And in the process, uh, he was such a good worker and they brought him here. They took that into consideration and he met my great grandmother, Selena, and they formed a relationship and they made a way for them to purchase this property and build this house so they wouldn't have to worry about him at night because he would go home with his wife. and family, and then come back in the mornings and everything worked out better that way.
0: Despite segregation, despite disenfranchisement, despite the threat of violence, Black people in Lexington built a self-sustaining community that persevered into the 20th century.
5: We were very independent. We had our own grocery store. We had our own barbershop. We had our own beauticians. We had our entertainment area which happened to be the grocery store, and the entertainment area, the Oaks, happened to be right beside our house. So a lot of people came around. Then as you went on up the street, you had a barbershop, and then you had another barbershop on the corner, and also a store. We had a number of beauty parlors up in this area, but we were pretty much self-sufficient. And we had out on the highway, you could go and have your car repaired, now, you had to go to Columbia to purchase a car, but you could have it fixed here in Lexington because we had mechanics that had their places and that would repair it. And we had our cleaners. We get our clothes cleaned here, right here. And like I said, it was a pretty much a, a city within a city. We were considered actually in the county. We just came into the town. My father was one of the ones that was pretty much instrumental in working with that group and getting us into the town.
4: And then for me, I just kind of, I had the tail end of everything growing up in the 80s and the 90s. Um, They still had, the store was still open when I was in elementary school, so I could go there and get 100 pieces of bubble gum for
3: $1.
0: (laughs) Let's go back to Benjamin Tillman. Tillman will end up being one of the most consequential figures in South Carolina history. He would go on to serve as the state's governor from 1890 to 1894, then in the U.S. Senate from 1895 until his death in 1918. A violent opponent of the post-war political order that empowered the state's formerly enslaved majority, he oversaw the adoption of South Carolina's current Constitution in 1895. That Constitution was created to replace the one adopted in the Reform period after the Civil War, and it would put in place as many obstacles to voting for Black people as it could. Tillman called this the sole cause of our being here at the 1895 Constitutional Convention. Of the 160 delegates attending, six were Black.
1: And Tillman actually, while not directly involved with the situation, his ghost and shadow looms over this lynching as well because F.C. Kaufman will be his right-hand man here in Lexington, and guys like Simeon Corley are people he wants to make sure never hold power again in the state. If you read accounts written in the 20th century or even in this time period, the 1890 election in South Carolina is referred to as the Farmer's Revolt. And it's, it, at this point, the Republican Party is a non-entity. Uh, you still have African Americans voting in, in fairly significant numbers in the low country. Robert Smalls, as late as the 1880s, is still a United States congressman.
0: Quick side note here on Robert Smalls, who is an interesting character in South Carolina history in his own right. He was born into slavery. Then during the Civil War, he stole a Confederate steamship to transport himself and other enslaved people out to the Union Navy, blockading Charleston Harbor. He went on to become one of the first African Americans to represent South Carolina in Congress, including an election win against Tillman's brother, George, the killer lawyer.
1: But now back to Michael. But in a place like most of South Carolina, the battle isn't between Republican-Democrat. Is between these upstart farmers, Jefferson would have referred to them as yeoman farmers, you know, middle class, lower middle class, poor farmers, who have found a leader who speaks their language about the need for a college to be built to educate farmers and other things to support farmers. Now, white farmers, mind you, and they have found their agricultural Moses, as he is called, in Benjamin Tillman. And so Ben Tillman is, talks two things. He talks white supremacy, and he talks about standing up for your middle to, low, to, to poor farmers against, who's their opponent, the wealthy conservative traditional elites. Men like Wade Hampton, who was elected governor in 1876. Uh, men like Governor John Richardson, who's in power at this time. Or men like Judge William H. Wallace. They are all considered conservative elites, and that if you leave them in power, they are gonna continue to ignore and oppress white farmers. So you have this socioeconomic battle where one side is being led by Tillman and the other side by these conservative elites who had served the state in the Civil War, but at this point, Tillman is is running a populist campaign to dethrone them. All this is happening in our story. This Mm -hmm. is also an election year and Tillman is running for governor right by, by may of 1890 he is already are already going to be the nominee of this populist faction of the democratic party literally the battle is going to be the primary later in the summer the general election in november is irrelevant because you're not going to have republican opposition so by this point fc kaufman in his role as for, in our terms a political operative for Tillman in Lexington has ascended close to the height of of where he's gonna be on the the socioeconomic and political food chain. Tillman remains a controversial
0: figure in South Carolina today. In 2015, the state received national attention when it removed the Confederate flag from in front of the state house. That decision was made only after nine worshipers were murdered in an historically black Charleston church by a gunman motivated by a white supremacist ideology and hopes of starting a race war.
3: 21-year-old Dylan Roof has been caught in North Carolina. Attorney General Loretta Lynch confirms he is now in police custody. Police say Roof walked into the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston last night, sat down for nearly an hour at a Bible study there, and then opened fire killing nine people, six women and three men.
0: One of the victims, Pastor Clemente Pinckney, was a state senator serving in the statehouse where the Confederate flag flew. In the aftermath of that killing, South Carolinians decided they couldn't have that flag, which was waved by the killer in images online, stand in front of its seat of government anymore. While the decision to remove the flag was still controversial, it signaled a moment when South Carolina might move beyond its racial history.
5: When the flag comes down, it it makes me realize that we all can change and make a difference. I will think about those who lost their lives. I will think about the tremendous opportunity we have to seize the moment that God has given all of us, not just some of us, black and white, regardless of gender, regardless of zip code. We all need to come together to make a difference so we all can live, work, and raise our children and live peacefully among ourselves.
0: But a few yards to the side of where that flagpole used to be still stands a statue of Ben Tillman with a plaque at the base calling him, quote, the friend and leader of the common people who, quote, taught them their political power and made possible for the education of their sons and daughters. But in 1890, all that is in the future. At this point in our story, Tillman is running for governor, to replace incumbent John Richardson in the Democratic primary. He's seeking to shake up a political order that at least on paper, still respects the rights black people won after the Civil War. Remember how much effort the white authorities in Lexington at the time put into preventing a lynching of Willie Lee Park, to make sure he was tried, convicted, and executed according to the law? At that same time, F.C. Kaufman the local political operative for the Tillman campaign, is concerned about winning votes for Tillman in the upcoming election. And simultaneously, he's also become one of the main witnesses against Willie Leapart. Kaufman was one of the main witnesses for the prosecution in the racially charged trial of a black man accused of attacking and sexually assaulting a white woman, exactly the sort of thing Tillman could make political hay out of for his gubernatorial campaign, It's not so much a conflict of interest as something Kaufman would have seen as one thing feeding into the other. Men like Governor Richardson, former Governor Wade Hampton, and Willie's trial judge, William Wallace, were committed to making the post-war, post-emancipation legal order work, if not in perfect racial equality, at least on paper. And because of that commitment, the legal appeal we talked about last time, followed by Willie's defense attorney, George Graham, seemingly created a real possibility that Willie could be granted a reprieve from execution and potentially a new trial where he could present the evidence exonerating him. Actors like Tillman and Kaufman were committed to tearing up that same legal order and eliminating what few rights someone like Willie Leapart might have had. Michael Burgess, the researcher who has delved so deep into the Leapart lynching case, believes there's a reason powerful people like Kaufman and Corley became so concerned about a young backcountry girl like Rosa Cannon. It's a theory based partly on a contemporaneous account in the New York Herald back in 1890, which was picked up by papers around the country at the time. It was a story about the legal appeal Willie's attorney, George Graham, had made to Governor Richardson for clemency for Willie after his death sentence and asking for a new trial, which we talked about in our last episode. But this news story goes farther than what we talked about last time. It claimed that, quote, Among the evidence in the hands of the governor was
1: to the effect that the girl he was supposed to have raped had been ruined recently. That exposure would come in time, and that the scheme of charging the Negro with the assault was arranged and planned by those most interested in the matter.
0: There are a lot of Victorian-era euphemisms in that, quote, ruined, exposure would come in time, but it hints at a deeper reason why there might have been so much attention paid to Willie Lepart's case. Here's Michael Burgess again.
1: One of the rumors is that she had come to live with the Corlees because she had been betrayed by a white man in her community or had been quote-unquote ruined by a white man in her community. In the late 19th century vernacular, that can mean a number of things. That can mean, simply put, she was single, she was unmarried, and had relations with someone in the mill community, and that that someone was perhaps a, a, a higher up in society, and basically told her father to make her disappear, which is not uncommon in the South, certainly in the mill mill village. If this is a mill owner or a, or a relative of the mill family, you know she could have put the screws to the father and said, well, if you want your job she needs to go away. Another alternative that ruin and betrayed could mean at the, at the time she's pregnant. Pregnant by the same white man. Uh and she has gone away, she has been sent away to 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 cover this up, to not let her community see, you know, what has happened to her because it would be an embarrassment to her family and, and a humiliation to the father's family. So What if the shifting stories around what
0: happened to Rosa Cannon that night, and Willie Leapheart's involvement in it, were meant to cover up the fact that Rosa was pregnant by an important community figure who would be embarrassed, or worse, if that news had become public? Why Rosa's story went from her being physically manhandled by a home invader, which is what she said in a statement to investigators, to one where she was raped. Why was the charge Willie was arrested for on the night of January 26 upgraded to sexual assault the day he went on trial a month later? If Rosa was pregnant, especially by some prominent member of the Lexington community, then a story about a sexual assault would be a good one to save her reputation in the eyes of her community, even if it cost Willie Leapart his life. Michael also thinks this is why it might have been
1: important that the crime was pinned on Willie specifically. It also should be noted that Willie Leepart is seen as being light-skinned. And in one of the newspaper articles in May of 1890, Willie is seen as, a light, as light-skinned from a poor family. Or they use the 19th century description in one article that he is mulatto. Or in another article, describe him as a ginger cake Negro. So he is light-skinned even though in her grand jury indictment and trial indictment, she describes Bailey from Columbia as being of a dark complexion. The reason that is relevant is if she is pregnant, perhaps Willie Leapart raping her as a light skinned African American could be used to explain how she got in that condition and making her a victim to be embraced as opposed to a woman who has violated the social norms of the day. We don't
0: know what, if anything, George Graham's appeal to the governor said
1: about this possibility.
0: U.S. Marshal W.J. Miller, who investigated the case on Graham's behalf, supposedly supplied the governor with copies of letters Rosa wrote to her family that cast doubt on her story, where she said she wasn't sure if Willie was the man who attacked her and contradicted her claims to have been raped. Those statements were also widely reported in the press at the time, but wherever those documents are now, Michael hasn't been able to find them. But the accusation of a black man having sex with a white woman, much less impregnating one, was a common concern among white Southerners at the time, and often precipitated the lynching of black men. Jennifer Dixon McKnight, a professor of black American history at Winthrop University, says concerns about this very intimate form of race mixing were at the forefront of the implementation of Jim Crow segregation during the period when Willie's case was playing out. By the time you get to the late
6: 1800s, there are still laws on the books in many southern states and cities against the intermingling of races in terms of relationship or sex, right? Right. And so those things are not only frowned upon, not just frowned upon, frowned upon by a strong enough word. They are, uh, there's a, a vehement resistance to that kind of intermingling, but it's also illegal. So there's that part. But the other piece is there's this, you know, sort of unspoken racial etiquette. That exists in the South, right? So things like Black people aren't supposed to look white people in the face, right? You never look at a white person in the eye. And there is such a thing during that time period as eye rape, right? Where a Black man can eye rape a white woman. You don't hear about as much as Black women eye raping white men, but certainly a uh, Black man eye raping a white woman. Is that um, a term
0: that they actually used? The yes. I rape?
6: I rape. Yes. Yes. You know, there's that piece where there's a racial etiquette that involves not being able to look at white people, and black people can't look at white people in the face. If a black person is approaching a white person or a white couple on the sidewalk, they know automatically to step off to the side and let them pass. Those types of things that we, you know, and addressing um, a white man or a white woman as "ma'am" and "sir." Regardless of their age, and so you might have an 85 year old black man referring to a five year old white child, a white male child, as sir. So all those things are a part of racial etiquette of that time period, right? And so when you think about, and and eye rape is something that a number of white black men have been lynched for, right? Just looking at a white woman inappropriately. So what we also know, though is that people who live together intermingle, period, right? While we as a nation have implemented all of these laws and norms around race, that doesn't change how people interact and how they feel about one another, which means that people intermingle across racial lines all the time.
0: If the plan was to protect Rosa Cannon's reputation, It would explain why such powerful people with connections to South Carolina's top political circles would have taken a special interest in her case, especially if the man responsible was also someone in a powerful position. Do you think this is why we might have Prominent people like Corley and F.C. Kaufman
1: are taking such an interest in, in this case in particular? I think so. I, I think F.C. Kaufman's involvement interests me. Now, he does live three or four houses down. His house still stands today. It's used as offices. But certainly his commitment to the Tillman campaign and Tillman himself play a part in this. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Manuel Simeon Corley right, you know, is involved. Is, but yes, I, I believe they are looking for a way to to redeem this young woman and whether they certainly I don't think they told her okay lie at the start but they see this as an opportunity to explain things that perhaps she made this story up because perhaps she's beginning to show uh, what's interesting is we have no record if a child was born or not born but that that really shouldn't be shocking because I doubt there would be any public mention of it the really
0: odd thing here is that someone with Corley's record, an opponent of slavery and a supporter of African-American civil rights, a Republican, when that was not a popular or expected position for a white Southerner to take, would end
1: up involved in a setup that would ultimately lead to a lynching. But what is ironic in this correspondence from Rosa is she points the finger at Manuel Simeon Corley as the one that persuaded her that Willie Part was the guy, which we find and completely out of character for him. Remember, before the Civil War, he was an abolitionist. During Reconstruction as a congressman, he pushed not just for African American male suffrage, he pushed for universal suffrage. But I think the Southern Code of Honor stands out more for him, that, that if She had recanted her statements that it would have reflected poorly upon him. And therefore, even though he is sort of an odd leader in the community, uh, he is still a a well-thought-of figure uh, in the town of Lexington. If it really was all a setup, a plan
0: to deflect attention and blame from an unwanted pregnancy, then Willie was the fall guy. Someone who may have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time and forced to play a part that turned out to be fatal. If the crime was pinned on Willie and he was sent to his death for raping Rosa, then any pregnancy could be explained to the Lexington community without anyone asking awkward questions. But then came George Graham. The evidence he and W.J. Miller uncovered was enough to convince Governor Richardson to postpone Willie's execution date. Now it looked like the plan might fail. Willie Leapart might even get a new trial and be exonerated. Then all those awkward questions might come back up with potentially explosive consequences. That couldn't be allowed to happen. That's when F.C. Kaufman, one of the original witnesses at the scene of the crime, would take it on himself to make sure the case
3: was closed once and for all.
0: Next time on The Wrong Walk Home.
3: My wife and daughter commenced to holler, got real excited and said, don't hurt him.
1: For God's sakes, let me out of here unless you want to kill two men. Five men successively attempted to enter the cell and were cracked over their heads. In fact, the mob is loud. They're not being secretive about this.
3: I found them lying in the Lexington County Jail. Flava's back, dead. As soon as he opened it, I said, Gentlemen, if you were through with me, let me out.
0: I'm Bristow Marchant. The Wrong Walk Home is a product of the state newspaper. It's produced by Lume Alisali, Jennifer Molina, Prasanthi Pickett, Kata Stevens, and Joshua Boucher. Special thanks to Don Blunt. For lots more on this story, visit thestate.com slash If you have more details on Willie Lepart's life, death, or descendants, email me at b.marchant@thestate.com.